Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. That's why I picked this sport, really. I just, I hate shoes so much. I wish they were never invented. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. Had a slight surprise trip to Las Vegas to celebrate my mother's 80th birthday. And we Happy ended up... birthday, mom. I know, my Jay is uh, 80 years old and still kicking it, man. It was hard keeping up with the ladies in Las Vegas, I will tell you. But we saw a bunch of shows, one of which had a uh, group called Human Nature, and they were singing Motown. And it turns out that they were a very, very famous boy band from Australia, and their fame was back in the 90s. And they sang the national anthem at Sydney 2000. It was incredible. We have to find the YouTube video of that. I know, I know. <laughs> we'll uh, look for that and uh, put it in the newsletter. We do have a newsletter that uh, comes out every Tuesday and tells about some behind-the-scenes action of the podcast and things you didn't hear on the show, as well as our listeners' favorite Olympic moments and other fun stuff, too. So check it out at olimfever.com. All right. Before we get to today's show, we'd like to thank our patron of the week. We have Patreon patrons who are vital to this show's existence, and those at Bronze and Above Levels get recognized for their generous donations that make this show possible every week. So this week, we'd like to thank Stanley Yang. Thank you, Stanley. Yay, Stanley. I know. We really appreciate you listening and donating to the show. If you would like to become one of our Patreon patrons, check out patreon.com slash Fever. We are hitting the beach today. I'm so excited. We had a great conversation with our guest last December. Our guest today is Kelly Clays. She is a competitor on the pro volleyball circuit, and uh, she's a graduate of University of Southern California and has been competing professionally since 2014. Among her many volleyball accomplishments includes gold at the 2016 World University Games with partner Sarah Hughes. Currently, she's partnered with Sarah Sponsel, and they are ranked eighth in the International Volleyball Federation, also called FIVB, uh, Beach Volleyball Rankings. Kelly talked with us about the sport and qualifying for the Olympics. Take a listen. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. First off, we want to learn a little bit more about the sport of beach volleyball. This is kind of a set and match type thing. So you win two, the best two out of three exactly. games. But you call it sets, right? Yes, yes, okay. sets. Mm -hmm. And you, you've got to score 21 points to win a set and you win by two. Every seven points, yes, okay. win by two, all of those good things. Okay. So, and then does the same person serve for an entire game or how do you switch off serving? Every time we gain a point, one of us would go back to serve. And if we lost the point, we are then in serve-receive, just like indoor volleyball and the other team would serve. And when we get the next point, the other person would go back to serve. So we just alternate Okay. Yeah. And, and time-wise, how long does a match usually take? 
Oh, it depends. I think one of the longest matches I was a part of was an hour and a half. And that was because there are two different tours that I play on. The AVP, which is the U.S.'s domestic professional tour, and the FIVB is the international professional tour. On the AVP, we've switched some rules around that are not on the not on the FIVB tour or will be incorporated in the Olympics. They do like a freeze rule. So at the very end of a match, the very last point of a match, the score is frozen and it's side out scoring. So the serving team can only get a point. So games get prolonged a long time due to that. This is this is old, old when beach volleyball first started ruling. Um, it used to be side out scoring all the time, but things have changed. Um, but the AVP has incorporated that rule, which has made games much longer. But I don't know, I'd say a normal match on the FIVB tour is maybe 45 to an hour. Okay, that's not bad. That's not yeah. bad. What are the different types of hits that you do? So you serve the ball and then you get three chances contact. or hits to get it back over the net. Right. And you could use one contact, you could use two contacts, or you could use three contacts. Um, and it's you for the most part, it's a pass or a bump, which is used on your arms are straight out in front of you and it's kind of on uh, your forearms you pass the ball the second contact is a set not a lot of people overhand set on the beach but my partner and I both do because the rules are a little different than indoor and then the third contact usually is an attack which is jumping and spiking the ball okay so if you don't set the ball from overhead it's kind of like a softer bumper do you scoop it up with your hands uh, it looks it looks the exact same as that first contact. The, okay. The, oh, okay. Okay. Um, you're just setting your partner instead. Okay. So yeah, set it, is really setting up the third hit versus exactly, the type exactly. of hit that it is. Right. Okay. I enjoy um, overhand setting on the beach for a lot of different reasons. I feel like I have more control. Uh, I feel like my partner and I can run a faster offense because I'm contacting the ball over my head versus out in front of me or below my body as well as I can sometimes trick the opponent, make them think I'm hand-setting, and then hit the ball over on two. Ah, okay. Yeah, so lots of different reasons, and everybody's strategies are different because everybody's strengths and weaknesses are different, so it just kind of depends on the day. So you don't have to hit it three times. You could hit it once or twice or or three. Exactly, yeah. And the same person can't hit it twice in a row. Exactly, yes. Okay, I thought I remembered that. Yep, yep. What's the difference between a dig and a hit? So just like we were talking about a pass mm-hmm. set and a swing or a hit, um, mm-hmm. you're setting up your partner to jump and attack the ball. So that would be a hit, and a, and a dig is the opponents on the other side receiving that ball and getting it back up in the air, not okay. letting you know touch the sand. Okay, okay. So when, when somebody talks about, like, because I – bet this is going to come up when we get to Olympics and they're actually airing it. I bet the announcers are going to talk about like average hitting percentage. What, what are they calculating? Are they calculating every time you hit the ball versus versus what? Yeah, every time you attack the ball, okay. not, not every contact, each contact would be statted differently. Just like in basketball, you know, an assist, a three point shot, free throw line shot. Like it's, it's all statted differently because they're all different plays in the game. So you would have a set percentage versus a hit percentage. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people calculate or keep really track of like set percentages just because everybody playing on the FIVB tour were all amazing athletes. I, I it's so much fun getting to watch such athletic people play all the time, but everyone's very good at what they do. So no, there's not a lot of mistakes made with setting out on tour. It's more, people keep more track of hitting because of hitting errors, your kill percentage, and that's due to, you know, the decisions you make versus the other team digging the balls that you hit. So like keeping track of those types of things. Okay, so what's a kill? So if I'm going up to swing and I'm playing against you guys, so you guys are on the other side of the court for me, and I go up and swing, hit the ball, or I can I can do any uh, first ball contact, second contact, third contact, any of those, and it goes down on the sand, it's a kill on your side of the sand. Okay. Wait, okay, so it, when I learned volleyball, it was bump, set, spike. Is a spike the same thing as a kill, or does a kill actually score so you the point? The spike 
or mm -hmm. a hit, you can call okay. it, those two words are interchangeable, is the act of hitting the ball. Okay. And the kill is if the ball goes down on your side of the net or on the court. So it's either going to be, after I hit the ball, it's either going to be a kill, which means I've executed that play and it went down, um, a touch off you guys. So let's say I hit it and you try to touch it, but it hits you and sprays outside the court. That would be a touch and error on you guys. Just a normal error by me. I hit it out outside of um, the lines of the court. Yeah, I think those are all of my options. So it's very similar to tennis in that there's unforced errors, there's winners. That's so those are the same. That's as I'm listening to this going, oh, this sounds familiar. Very similar to tennis. I mean, it's I think it's a fun mix of, you know, indoor volleyball, but you know, it's it's two people, not six, and then tennis, you know, doubles. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you mentioned indoor and outdoor and the difference in the number of the people. Obviously, indoor is on a court, outdoor is on sand. What other big differences are there? Beach volleyball, you cannot receive a serve with like an open hand contact. Indoor, you can. So that's one big difference. And then the other, I'd say biggest difference would be indoor. You can, on an attack, you can open hand tip the ball and kind of redirect it anywhere you kind of want it to go. But with beach and only two people, that's a fair amount of court to kind of cover. So we're not allowed to open hand contact the ball on an attack. So we've adapted and it's called a pokey and you kind of just make a little like claw with your hand and hit it on your knuckles and kind of direct the ball that way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's called a pokey. And then obviously you're not wearing sneakers, which I read was something that you really love. It's, it's why I picked this sport really. I just, I hate shoes so much. I wish they were never invented. <laughs> and I love that I get to go out and play my sport barefoot. It's my favorite thing. I, I go in the gym and I lift barefoot as often as I can. I, I'm barefoot right now. I, I love it. What advantages does the bikini give you when playing this sport? Oh, I think it's so empowering. And I like every bit of me is, you know, laid out on the line, like, not just like my talents and abilities like out on the court, but like all of me. And I think it's, it's very vulnerable as well as empowering. Yeah. And, and I, I love our uniforms and I, I think it's extremely comfortable to wear. I don't, I couldn't really imagine playing in anything else. Uh, See, I was going to, when I was thinking about this today, I was like, well, if you had like a one piece, like that just seems to be like more sand trappage. Right? I, I've worn a one-piece once or twice, and, I mean, you can still kind of shimmy the sand out when, when it does happen. Um, <laughs> but the, the only time I, I wish I was wearing more, I guess, is when I've, I've been in extreme heats and plus humidity, and I'm really sweating, and my hands are, like, drenched. And I need to wipe my hands off on something, but that's usually refs and, you know, the tournament organizers will leave, like, a towel right by the net, but other than that, like, I I feel good to go. I feel like anything else would just kind of get in the way. Yeah, but speaking of, like, heat and humidity, you were in the, the test event in Japan, right? It was, yeah. Okay, so how was the heat and humidity for you there? I felt good. We, uh, thankfully, the our organization brought some, they're called ice vests, which is just like a normal vest that you kind of put ice in, um, which was super convenient warming up in. I think it's just something you have to kind of go in with the mindset of like, it's going to be hot and you're going to be fine. And just kind of pushing through those, you know, difficult times. Cause I've been in places hotter than how it was in Tokyo. I think this year in Hawaii, actually, we had an event kind of at the end of the year and it was hotter there than it was in Tokyo. So I just think another, I mean, it's another, I think interesting and amazing thing about our sport is I, and all outdoor sports, you're kind of subject to, you know, whatever the weather has for you at, at that day at that location. And it's just made me be an adaptable person. And I love it. I, I love every little bit of it. Do you play in the rain? Yep. Yep. I've played in the snow before I've played in everything. Uh, it started hailing once I was in Moscow and they, they stopped play for about half an hour and then it kind of started snowing again and then it kind of died down and the director of the tournament was like, all right, we're going to start back up. I'm like, awesome. I can't feel my fingers or my toes, but let's do this. <laughs> now, in that sort of situation, do you put on shoes? Can you put something on? So 
sand socks are a thing, which I did not bring to that event, which was awesome. But everybody else was wearing like, I think socks and like the sand socks over, which they have kind of an elastic strap that goes kind of around your ankle, kind of like a crew sock um, and tightens. So the sand doesn't, doesn't get in as easily. Uh, they're not perfect yet, but you know, they, they do their job. Cause I know in Rio, there was a big issue with it being so cold. Right. A lot of the, I don't want to say the players were complaining, but they were certainly talking about it, that it was really cold and that made it more difficult. Yeah. I think, you know, warming up is another challenge when it's super cold. I know everyone's, you know, got their own routines and that's just elongated more when it's really cold because it just takes you longer to warm up. What is your warm up routine? I usually do a little bit of visualization before I get moving. And then I do a little bit of static stretching and kind of opening up. My thoracic spine gets tight sometimes. So I have like a handful of exercises that I do to kind of open things up. And then I run and then I do some more stretching, some band work, just kind of trying to activate and warm up my whole body. And then my partner and I, at that point, we've, we've timed it. So we finished doing all of those things at the same time. Then we start throwing and peppering, which I don't know if you know what that term means. Okay. So imagine, you know, you and me were, I don't know, 20 feet away from each other with a ball and I throw you the ball, you pass it back to me and I set you and you hit it back to me. And we, we keep going around and around and around. And that's kind of warming up every skill. We, we kind of move the ball around, get each other moving. Um, and then we start doing stuff with our coach, defensive plays, serve receive plays, and we'll serve. And about that time, our warm-up is about an hour to an hour 15. And then we, we get on the court and we go rocket. What kind of injuries do you need to worry about? I feel like beach volleyball, most injuries are shoulder related, which I feel like most overhead sports, there are people with shoulder problems. But yeah, I think I feel like everybody's different. I've seen um, sprained ankles, which I didn't really think was going to happen on the beach. But you know, things happen. People, I've seen people hurt their backs. So I feel like those are the big ones. Knees sometimes too. Yeah, I really didn't think, I, I started playing indoor and came over to the beach and I did not think an ankle sprain was in my future after I switched over, but you know what? I did it and it was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and you live and you learn. <laughs> when you go to different events and tournaments, how is the sand different from one place to another? Cause I imagine oh, it's totally oh, different. Yeah. So what I, I love about living in California and training in California, the beaches in Manhattan and Hermosa beach are like almost the deepest that I've ever experienced around the world. There's been one or two places that have about even like depth of sand. Like I feel like I'm shin deep moving around in the sand versus other locations, super shallow. I feel like I'm not even sinking in the sand at all. We call it kind of jumper sand because everybody's just jumping out of the, out of the sand, like no problems at all. Usually we arrive to a location two to three days before the competition starts to get acclimated to the weather, the time change, and to train on the courts that we're going to play on. And you kind of feel out the sand those two or three days, which I think is really helpful because everywhere we go, it's different sand. I've, I've been on beaches where there's shells everywhere and I'm tearing up my knees diving on it. And, but we you know try to get as many sharp objects out as possible. Back when I played NCAA beach volleyball, our national championships were in Gulf Shores, Alabama, and the beaches there, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures or anything, It's it looks like sugar sand, like it's white and it's so soft and it's just like, I feel like I could, I could dive straight like head first into the sand and nothing's gonna hurt, it's awesome. So that was, that was always fun every year kind of going there and getting to play there. But yeah, we, we've seen a lot of different types of sand and you just, again, adapt, adjust and, and go with it. Cause you know, everybody, every other athlete who's, who's out there has the same thing has to, you know, do the same thing you're doing. So, so how is the sand in Tokyo? It was good. I'm not a hundred percent sure if the sand that they brought in for the test event was the same sand that they're going to use. I think it is, but it was great. So it's teams of two. Partnering, of course, is absolutely crucial. How did you and Sarah hook up as 
partners. I think one of the coolest things about beach volleyball is how athlete driven it is. So I go out and pick my partner. I go out and pick my coach. I go out and pick all of the trainings and everything versus I'm going to keep comparing to indoor. The USOC hires, you know, coaches and the coaches pick the athletes and the roster. So I think that's a really interesting piece that we do that, you know, some other sports don't do. I know a lot of other sports do what we do as well, which I think is cool. When you get into a situation where it's like a national team thing, do they have a coach or can you bring your own coach with you? Or how does that situation work? So with Beach, we have like a master coach that kind of oversees all of the national teams, but each team um, has their own coach. So like Sarah and I went out and interviewed a lot of different coaches, had trainings with them, kind of like a normal hiring process, and then picked the coach that we're working with now. And then same kind of system when I was looking for a new partner. But I think one huge thing I was looking for was just like chemistry, because I think there's been there's been a lot of I think athletes who run very like business oriented like we come out here like this is our job this is work and and that's all to it which I'm I'm right there with them but for me I also need someone that I can like connect with like on and off the court to get me to perform at my best so that was a huge piece for me looking for someone who who gets me on and off the court and I for sure found that with Sarah she's amazing I could compliment her for like hours she's she's so much fun she just graduated from UCLA last May so excited for her um so we have that fun rivalry because I graduated from USC what three two two and a half three years ago now so we always have fun with that and yeah we've we there's so much time on the road like we were we were on the road this summer for three months straight in a different country every weekend. And there's a lot of downtime and traveling time and all of that. And we, we just, we have so much fun together when we're, we're not on the court. And when it's, when it's game time, we're fierce, we're ready to go. And we, we want to kick butt. When you're on the court and one of you's wearing a one and one of you's wearing a two, what do the numbers signify, if anything? And how do you choose who wears what? It doesn't really matter who's okay. wearing number it's kind of just preference one of the two of you needs to be the quote-unquote captain and that person is the one who's allowed to speak to the ref um the other person's not allowed to speak to the ref so they they keep track of whose serving turn it is who's allowed to speak to the ref you know those types of things with the numbers but they don't really really mean anything okay okay do Um, you always use the same or do you two switch off yeah Sarah really likes number two, so I gave it to her. So I'll just wear number one. It doesn't matter to me. It's not like I'm looking down. It's like, oh, I'm wearing this number today. It's just, it doesn't really signify anything to me. Okay. Yeah. But it is interesting that they the sport only allows one person to talk to the ref. and I know, like interesting. That, so. There's just two of us. I think it would get pretty rowdy if, like, all four athletes kind of went <laughs> at the ref up on one. <laughs> screaming at them versus, you know, just the captains going up at the ref. I think that's... That might be why it's there. <laughs> so we talked a little bit, you mentioned a little bit earlier about like offensive strategies and defensive strategies. Like what might some of those look like? So like if, if we're watching on TV at home, like if we see something set up, we know, oh, hey, this might be happening. So let's say my partner and I are playing against you two. So mm-hmm. let's say one of you is attacking, about to swing and attack at, me and my partner on my side of the court from the left side of the court. Can so all, they're left. They're left. So can we all imagine that? So I'm I'm the taller one, so I'm the quote-unquote blocker. So I would be in front of that attacker in their face, okay? Mm-hmm. And Sarah's my, my short little defender who runs around and does all that things. W- watching a beach volleyball match, I don't know if you would have noticed, but before that team serves – they're usually holding up numbers behind their back to their partner. Yes. So let's say I'm showing a one and a one behind my back to my partner. That means my left hand is representing the girl. It's our left still in in front of me to my left when I'm blocking her. And my right hand is representing the girl to my right. So if it was one and one, I would get in front of the person attacking and I'm blocking their line. So straight ahead. And Sarah, my defender is off my block, digging the angle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's a one is a line block. So the blocker is blocking line, the defender is defending angle. If I show two, the blocker is blocking angle and de the defender is digging line. Ah, so okay, okay. And then it gets more complicated from there because lots of teams do different things and that's where I think the chess piece of our sport kind of comes into play and it's, and it's a mind game. How can I convince you to hit where I want you to hit? Like I might show that I'm going to block angle and then at the last second dive back to the line. And it's just, it's kind of a chess game from there, but those are kind of the, the basic starting defensive plays. Like some people, uh, and then it just goes from like threes, fours, fives. Some people call it like X's. It just like it depends on the team. Again, that team's strengths, weaknesses, kind of covering those strengths, really trying to bring those strengths into play more and and kind of go from there. And, e and each team is different. And that's it's so fun watching film and getting to see, okay, this is what you can really like from year to year see like this is what this team has been working on, especially teams that stayed together for a long time. You can see those those athletes, you know, adapting and changing and doing those types of things, which is always really fun to watch. So do you have teams, well, I, I assume you have teams that you prefer playing versus others because your strength and, and weaknesses match oh. up better? Yeah, yeah. But we try to not like really pay attention to, because we, it's out of our control who we play at events. The first round, so at a, an, an international event, it's pool play first and we've adjusted things. It's modified pool play, so... You've got four teams in a pool. Whoever's ranked one in that pool will play team four, and twos and two and three will play each other. And then after those games, winners will play winners, losers will play losers, and whoever wins out of the winners to, has taken first in pool, that loser takes second. And out of the losers, uh, whoever wins that takes third, and whoever took fourth is now out of the event. And then out of those top three teams, they get thrown into a big single elimination bracket. So we can't control any of those things. So we don't really try to be like, look at, you know, day to day as, oh, I, w I hope we play these teams because I think we match up well against them. I like to think, I hope we play against whoever the best teams are. And if we lose, we, we get to see what we need to work on and like use those opportunities to grow and get better. And if when we go out there, you know, the intention is to win. And if we do that, that's just exciting and we we keep pushing forward because we're a new we're a newer team we've been together for a year now versus there's girls who've been playing together for five to ten to 15 years what are some of the changes you've seen in the time that you've been playing Ooh, um a lot more kind of little tricky types of plays looking back and, and watching old films of games uh, matches it was mostly you know pass set hit and that's and that's all there is to it back and forth back and forth back, back and forth and there's nothing wrong with that and I think as the game has advanced or has grown and adapted um, more teams are it's called optioning so it's it's attacking the ball on the second contact so instead of pass set hit it's pass and that pass is also a set and then the setter would come in and attack the ball to try to get that defensive team, you know, surprise them. Maybe they weren't set up in time, ready to defend um, and get a point that way. I think little things like that. Some teams have been even like going, pretending they're going to bump set their partner and then bumping the ball back behind their head over the net. So it's just like little, okay. little things like that. Uh, I think serving has gotten so much better over the years, but I think like little things like that is... There's a few ways the game has kind of changed and, and adapting over the years. So historically, Brazil and the U.S. have been real powerhouses. Yeah. But have some of the changes come because other countries are building their programs? Oh, for sure. There's so many amazing athletes. Um, Germany is amazing. Canada is amazing. Um, they're always really high up there. But I'd say both of those countries just have two teams versus the U.S. There's four really good teams that are fighting for two. There's only two spots in the Olympics. So it's, and same thing for Brazil. Like there's four, maybe even five teams that are absolutely amazing, but only two will go. So it's, yeah, I would, I'd say us and Brazil has always been really good. Um, but so many other countries are, are stepping up their game and coming out fast and furious. And yes, because we know Germany and Canada 
known for their beaches. And the German men also have... Yeah, and the Norway guys have won the last... They've won 12 medals in the last two years, or just this last year. I'm not 100% sure what their numbers are. They're playing incredible. Yeah, no, I, I think all around the world teams are, or countries are really stepping up, and it's, it's really fun to see. We also did see when we were doing some research that you've done some sitting volleyball recently. Have, yes. I love sitting volleyball. It's so fun. How did you get into that, and what do you love about sitting sitting? One of my first beach coaches is now, I think he's an assistant coach on the women's city national team. Um, and he invited me down to a clinic they were running in San Diego. So I came down and got to meet a lot of the men and women um, athletes on, on the national team. And they're incredible athletes, incredible people. And I got to hear some of their stories. And gosh, they just inspired me like crazy. And um, one of them invited me to play on their city nationals team. So I went and I think we took third or something, but it was, it was so fun. And it's just like another like layer of the game. How, what, how long did it take you to really figure out how to not use your legs? Like all of a sudden you're reliant totally on your kind of upper body and maybe your hips a bit. I think the only thing I kept um, maybe like cheating on is one of their rules. Um, you're not allowed to like lift. It's called a butt lift is when you use your legs to lift your butt off the ground. Like your butt, if you're contacting the ball, your butt has to be on the ground. So like I would be up blocking, just sitting there and I'm so used to like jumping. So I'd give myself a little and they're like, no, no, no. Like that's cheating. Like butt has to be all the way on the ground. Um, so I think that was one of the hardest things for me also moving around because I have to use my arms and my legs to kind of push myself around and get in the right position. And in warmups, I mean, there's all of them can do this. They could like probably run as fast as I can, like back and forth on the court, but they're, you know, sitting and just, I don't, I don't know how they do it, how they push themselves so fast and get from point A to point B almost like as fast as me running it's incredible what they do so that that for me was like really hard but once like they kind of set things up for me so I didn't have to move that much and I just got to kind of tee off on people which was so fun but I think the biggest difference that sitting obviously other than like sitting on the ground and the net slower was how fast paced it is I didn't like realize it going into it but once I was like there on the court with you know five other other athletes on the court that ball's coming so fast and so quick like right at your face so like hands need to be up at all times just kind of ready to go and ready to like ricochet it back to your team which was really fun because I didn't I love how like fast-paced volleyball is in general and it just got faster so like I think it's so fun to watch I think it's so fun to like play and be a part of yeah how how many balls in the face did you get before you learned your lesson Zero. Oh. <laughs> kind of question is that <laughs> me in the face? I've been on wood. I've only been hit in the face once in my life playing volleyball. I'm fairly athletic. Like that is what God give gave me, like athleticism, and that's all I got. So thank you, Lord. Um, but it was in high school. My my high school coach wanted me to demo a drill and my assistant coach was supposed to hit a ball pretty far in front of me. And I was supposed to demo like a diving roll. So I was ready and like already kind of leaning into dive and she hit it square at my face instead of like a foot in front of me. And I just, I took it in the face and I looked at her like, like what drill are you doing? And she's like half laughing, half like so apologetic. And we like we still talk about it to this day. Like thank you for just decking me in the face. Really appreciate it. I want to go back to strategy a little bit. And yeah. when you're in the middle of the game, how long does it take you to like read the court or read what the other team is doing? This depends on the team. Um, I think, well, we watch film before we play a team and we try to pick up on tendencies and try to kind of pick apart, you know, this play I think would work well against them and we'll have a a lineup of things. Just like in football, they have how many plays to call type of thing. And, you know, when you start a game, you start running, you know, each play and like, okay, this play worked twice. 
this one didn't work at all and this one worked once. And you kind of just try to pick apart what the other team is doing, but they're also making adjustments too. So it's that's the fun and that's that's kind of the chess piece because I'm I'm running a play, but I'm also I might be running one play, but I'm also like faking a different play and trying to trying to show them one thing and kind of take the other and it. There's so many like little nuances to this and and you want to you want to make kind of a juke move when they're looking at you so you have to wait for the right time and um sometimes I'll be blocking and I'll fake a block jump and I'll pull so like they think I'm there but I've now pulled and now we've got two defenders in the backcourt and they think I'm up in their face so it's just so many like little nuances and it's so fun to kind of try all of them out as well as I love when Sarah starts starts chipping in at me and like hey like this 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 and this has worked because I keep doing this to them like well let's keep doing that and because I I feel like the defender they're in the backcourt and they can kind of see the game with a different set of eyes I'm I'm up at the net and sometimes I get kind of tunnel vision because I like I really need to like pay attention to the attacker and where they're going because I'm I'm that first line of defense and I've got kind of that smaller window to look through so like her having like more and like a bigger window of visibility i love when defenders start like yapping at ideas and then we start i feel like making even more plays because when they see things like in my experience the points start rolling and it's it's more fun and you get to like be more creative which which is what i love to do anyway i love just doing creative crazy things it's it's so much fun <laughs> so you're a talker during matches you and Sarah I are talkers to- when I'm when I'm for sure and it's it's you know things that we're we're still working on sometimes when I'm getting frustrated like I get super quiet and Sarah's like reminding me like Kel like I know you're frustrated but like we got to talk and I'm like I know you're so right like and I have to force myself to talk but for sure when I'm like when things are going good it's easy to talk and it's easy to throw out new ideas and easy to do a b and c and it's it's those tough times and I know for me, like, I get quiet. So it's just, you know, another thing that I'm I'm working on. Jill and, I, Jill and I are taking notes for our marriage therapy session that we're going to do after this. <laughs> I love it, guys. <laughs> because it's true. It's, you know, the partnership, it's true. It's like, who gets it's quiet? Who likes to talk? It's a relationship. Like, it's a marriage between the two of us. It's crazy how, like, accurate, it, like, that metaphor has been. Like, I, when I first started playing beach and some older athletes were telling me like, Oh, it's a marriage. It's, it's that. I'm like, okay, crazy old lady, like say what you want. And now I'm like six years in, I'm like, okay, it's a marriage. Like (laughs) it's so true. Yeah. I want to talk about Tokyo a little bit. How much do you actually think about qualifying at this point? Oh gosh, way more than I should. I need to like, I'm, I'm going to dive into more of Sarah and I's like, relationship i'm very i wouldn't say future oriented but i very much think about the future probably too much and sarah's very present minded and like really helps me stay grounded in the present what we're doing right now you know what's what's the task at hand how do we accomplish that type of thing well i'm looking down the road and i think we need to do a b and c to get to where we need to go so i love that we have that piece together because I think we both use that to our advantage like she grounds me and I help her see more out in front of her when I think she's like not thinking about the future at all when I feel like we need to at times for sure but yeah no I I mean I know where we're at in the race and when we're at events I try not to pay attention because how I mean I could I could explain how the qualifying process works okay I'll dive right in. Okay, so it's a two-year process. It started last last October to June 15th of, of 2020 is the whole qualifying period. They take your best 12 events, and yeah, I mean, it's it's as simple as that. And But the thing that sucks, like, we're, we're ranked number, like, we're number eight in the world right now, which is exciting, like, yay for us, but we're the third U.S. team. So we wouldn't go. So we we need to beat out one of those other two teams, um, which is where my future oriented mind at events would be like, okay, like how are they doing? Like what do we need to finish to like get to A, B, and C? And Sarah does a great job, like 
you know, it's, we can't control it. Like, let's just focus on the right now. So I think I've been trying to be more present minded and not really like focus on the future, focus on what other teams are doing because we can't control it. And it, it doesn't really matter what they do. Like I know what we need to do. So I know what's going on, but I'm trying not to pay attention. I'm trying to put the blinders on. <laughs> but in a sense, does that make you choose certain events over another or say, oh, we need to get more events in on the calendar so we get more options for more points or yeah, no, those, dump those, some of the low points? A lot of conversations that we have with our coach, and we've kind of given him the reins on that of, you know, him and our master coach at, at USA Volleyball. I think they're they're doing a great job kind of organizing things for us so that we, all I really want us to focus on is us going out there and like playing the best that we can. And just, I, I love, I love our mindset of every time we get on the court, we just want to get a little bit better and like push each other a little bit more. And I think, I think the results will come with us being like process oriented versus like goal oriented. You know what I mean? The journey so, is the key. Yeah, yeah. But isn't A, it's got to be hard to be on this bubble, and B, elephant in the room, you're right below Carrie Walsh Jennings, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. like, I know. <laughs> do you, are you starting to get much media attention that focuses just on that, or no? Um, yeah, and full of times, like, I feel like interviewers will, like, very much focus on, like, how does it feel to be, like, this close and to be behind, like, Jennings I'm like you know I could talk her praises like crazy she's an amazing athlete she's done incredible things but that's not what I'm focused on or really care about at the moment I'm focused on us getting better this off season and preseason as athletes and as people and prepping as best that we can so we can do our absolute best when season starts and so that I can feel good and like be happy with the results whether we go or we don't because I because I know I laid everything out on the line and if somebody beats me like with me laying it all out on the, on the line like props to them they played better than me and I need to get better but I'll have no regrets because I know like I gave it my 100%. Do you remember like when in your career you switched from like having that awe against playing some people to like hey I am who I am and I'm pretty good so I think when I graduated college, mm-hmm. that that flipped for me because I know before I had graduated and I was playing just during the summer. So I was missing a lot of events, but we had school, so couldn't really miss that. And you just talking about this made me think of um, the last Olympics. My partner and I beat the, the, the girls who won the Olympics like a month mm-hmm. before the Olympics. And then we played them again after the Olympics and beat them again. And it was just like such a frustrating moment of like, gosh, like there was no way we could qualify because we were in school and we would have had to like drop out of school to try to qualify. But damn, like I felt like we were, gosh, how old was I? 21 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And felt like we were, we were right there with the best of the best and which was a really exciting feeling, but also kind of frustrating and I think when, when things, when I graduated and this became like a full-time, this became my job, my career, my, you know, everything. I think that's when it kind of flipped and like, like she's, the girl on the other side is an A, B, and C, but I don't, I don't care. I'm going to beat you is kind of my, my mentality. Cause like, I know and respect what other athletes have done. And I think it's amazing. But when we're on like opposite sides of the court, like none of that matters. But when we're off the court, like that's a different story. Like we can be friends. We can be, we can be anything, you know, but it's, it's different when you're on the court. Right. Cause I would think if you kept that kind of awe when you're on the court, that just kind of defeats you. Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. Allison, what else do you got? I, I kind of want to hear the elevator pitch for beach volleyball because I, I have That's not watched person. I, you know, I, I have not watched a lot of beach volleyball. I admit, because honestly, I find it intimidating to watch. Why? I guess because like there's no way I could ever even <laughs> attempt it. So so the fact so you only watch sports that you feel like you can watch? Or like No, that you- no, but there's something about beach volleyball that I find very intimidating. Interesting. I know. It's a no. little odd. That's- I know. <laughs> well, is it because the beach and the glamour and the bikinis and 
Uh, let's face it, Allison. You and I are not glamorous beach bikini girls. I'm sorry. Where's the glamour? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're all beautiful and you're all tanned and, and you're just fantastic. And and I'm and I'm so amazed by it. And I guess you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you're very sweet. But well, like so I'm I... sitting here doing this podcast with you. I'm like I'm not I'm not bail like. But that's my mentality. Like I, I run like head first into things, you know. That's so, so interesting that you're intimidated, like even just watching it. I am a little bit, which is funny because I, you know, I watch a lot of other sports that I would never attempt yeah. or could never possibly do. But yeah. something about beach volleyball sort of brings out the geeky high schooler in me, and I'm just like, oh, I can't even watch that. That's so funny. Oh, you're missing out, my friend. We, I know. It's I. I mean, I love the sport every little bit of it and i i love the athletes and i think a lot of different um media outlets are doing a great job showcasing what people do off the court as well as on so like people can be more personable because i think that's a cool thing about beach volleyball in general now i'm going to try to convince you guys to come out to an event because you could sit right next to the court cheering for me obviously um and i could like walk to the side of the court and high five you mid-match like it's that personable and i just think there's uh there's something about it like being at an event just the every every little bit of it just makes makes me feel like full and happy and i love the atmosphere i love the culture of beach volleyball i love every little bit of it i i loved indoor when i played but and I grew up, you know, a gym rat. Um, but once I, I started playing beach, just the atmosphere is different. It's more mellow, laid back, but it's also like it hasn't lost any of that competitive edge, which I love. I love that mix because I think it's a more balanced and more relatable mix to have. Yeah. Is that a, is that a good enough elevator pitch for you? That's I'm not, fantastic. I'm not a salesman. I don't do these things. <laughs> <laughs> See, because Allison, they do make it fun and like music's pumping. And uh, I think what... I get amazed about beach volleyball is that it's two people in well granted the court's probably a little smaller but you're in my brain it's two people doing the job of six right and they're doing it in sand mm-hmm. yep it's sort of like how ginger rogers did it backwards in heels yes exactly thank you so much kelly you can check out kelly's website at kellyclays.us and on twitter and insta she is at kellyclays3 and clays is spelled c-l-a-e-s and you should check out her stuff her her feed is okay so one of the things that we didn't get to and it's going to be some uh special content for our patrons kelly loves anime and some cosplay and dungeons and dragons and so she really got into talking about that stuff but she and uh sarah her partner have been making some parody videos and they've been posting them on her insta feed and they are pretty funny so. They're pretty great. And who knew our interview was going to turn into a little bit of a therapy session for me? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Let's get barefoot, put on our bikinis, and just talk it out with Kelly. Right. <laughs> I think that needs to be on her uh, Insta feed as well. <laughs> therapy with Kelly on the beach. <laughs> oh, man. She was fun. I really liked her. This is one of those that's very the heartbreaking aspect of how Olympic qualifications work, especially when you have country limitations. So as Kelly said, they're ranked eighth in the world, but they are the third U.S. team and only two U.S. teams will get to go to the Olympics. Team USA 2 is right above them rankings wise. So we don't know how this is going to play out. Best of luck to Kelly and Sarah. We are rooting for you. You know, you've got the power of Team Olympic Fever supporting you, lifting you up, spiking that ball. Basically, I'd have to stand on your shoulders for us to be able to (laughs) spike the ball. What we need is like a mini tramp. And one of us hits the ball in the air and the other one moves the mini tramp. (laughs) Kind of taps the ball back up. And then you jump and spike it. Point. I think a sprained ankle would be the best that would come out of that scenario. <laughs> no, it would be awesome because you would jump and then you'd like, you'd jump up, you'd, you'd hit the ball and then like do a little flipper. You'd, you'd work out a dismount and landing situation. That would be killer. I appreciate your confidence in me. <laughs> Just start investing in that injury tape now. <laughs> 
But thank you so much, Kelly. We really appreciate your time, and we are happy to have you on Team Olympic Fever. Speaking of Team Olympic Fever, let's check in with the team with our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Our Team Olympic Fever update is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector is the world's largest free online community for Olympic pin collectors, and I have noticed new members on the site, which is great. We're getting more pins, more people out there sharing and cataloging their collection. It's a great tool because if you do have a good pin collection and you want to get those pins that you you didn't get them at the last Olympics and you're trying to sort out your collection and, and finish it, pincollector.com can help you. They've got a platform where you can buy, sell, and trade, and their rates are lower than other online platforms. So visit pincollector.com and sign up for a free account today. Now, thanks to our partnership with Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever pin, which is awesome. You can get yours if you become a Patreon patron at any level or make a one-time donation of $20 through PayPal to us and visit olimfever.com slash support hyphen the hyphen show for more details. So what's going on with our folks? Our Kiwi Connection, Dr. Michael Warren, has published his first journal article in the International Journal of the History of Sport. It's called Crafting Critical Echoes in Sports Organizations, Oral Histories of and Possibilities for the New Zealand Olympic Committee. And he co-authored that with Jeffrey Coe. Very exciting read. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Claire Egan has finished 28th in the IBU World Cup Women's Sprint at Ruhpolding, which is this weekend's stop on the World Cup Tour. I have really come to enjoy watching some biathlon. Good, good. And finally, the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant have added a new show to his Matt Talk Online network of wrestling podcasts. This one is called Forward, and it's from the Wisconsin Wrestling Federation and is hosted by Scott Kluver and Kevin Black. So if you are into the world of Wisconsin wrestling, check it out at Matt Talk Online. Moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. One of the big pieces of news over the last week was the introduction of the cardboard beds for the Tokyo Village, which is interesting because we'd seen the design before, but now it was like, bam, hit the new, here's the, here's how the village rooms will look. And hey, we have these cardboard beds, which are very sustainable and hold 440 pounds, like 200 kilograms. Yeah. So the big controversy about the beds is, um, can it hold more than one person? I guess you'll have to weigh your friends and do the math and proceed with caution. There was also some concern about how narrow the beds are in this context of inviting friends over. And there was some interesting discussion in our Facebook group about that as well. Yes. Check that out at Olympic Fever Podcast. The ticket design is out. Have you seen these? I have. And what do you think? I think I'm going to forget about them five minutes after I look at them. Ah, okay. So I, I like them. I like the fact that the Olympics and the Paralympic tickets complement each other. I think that's very cool, except for you'd have to have both Olympics and Paralympics tickets to really remember and notice the difference. To your point, the Olympic tickets, they're kind of split in half. The top half has a design that is a colored background with the pictogram of the sport and information about the date and time. And then the lower half is white with the rings and the Tokyo logo and more information about where you're sitting. So I do think they're pretty. I will agree with you that they are not, they're not Mexico 1968. Now, I have a question about the tickets. You know, I'm so old school. Mm -hmm. The tickets would get torn. I assume these tickets are not, that you're just scanning them and then you get to keep the whole thing. You're not losing any of that ticket. I'm pretty sure, yeah, that's the way it goes. Right, that you just scan it and keep it. So that also, I guess, makes it more, I would think the design would be even more important, but it is sort of uninteresting to me. Gotcha. Those should be sent in the mail. Hopefully you'll get them in a few months if you've gotten tickets. So if you get them, post some pictures. I want to see what, I want to see people's tickets since I'm not getting any. And in other Olympic news, we found out some more stuff about bids. So the IOC has said, according to gamesbids.com, that the three cities that want to bid to host the 2030 games are Sapporo, Salt Lake City, and Barcelona. Hmm. So those are what the the cities who have talked to the IOC about it. 
That's an interesting combination. Mm -hmm. And but Barcelona has bid before because it would be they'd have venues across the Pyrenees Mountains. These would be all repeat cities. Games Bids says that they talked about it, but never uh, actually submitted a bid for 2026. Who? Barcelona? Yes, Barcelona. Okay. And then on the 2032 Summer Olympics bids, Madrid is talking about bidding again. So Spain's going all in. Yeah, I know. Wow. It's really interesting because Madrid has bid for 2012, 2016, and 2020, and they lost. And then Seville bid and lost for 2004 and 2008. And well, then, oh, this is, this is the other winter city that's bid for Spain. Uh, Jaca, J-A-C-A, they bid four times in 98, 2002, 2010, 2014, and lost every time. Wow. I mean, because Barcelona did have the best torch lighting right. ever. Right. And that alone would push my vote toward a Spanish city. <laughs> If they could even come close to matching the archer shooting that flaming arrow into right. the cauldron, yeah, I mean, yeah. that... It was amazing. But I think one of the, the reasons that Madrid's kind of interested again is the whole Agenda 2020 and how things are supposed to be cheaper. And I just would be like, hey, we got this old bid here. Let's just dust it off and turn it in again. Save you know, a lot of it's, money. It's funny you say that because I do wonder... When a city bids over and over and over again, I mean, obviously they do get feedback each time. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why you, I assume they get some feedback. This is what was missing in your bid. This is why this, or they just see who won Mm -hmm. and what the differences are. I'm sure there's some analysis afterwards. How much do they just readjust the existing bid? I don't know. That's a good question. I bet we could get copies of the bid books. Oh, that's a good idea. And someday, like, look at the, just compare bids across somebody who's bid three or four times. And see how they they update it, or yeah. if they update it. Yeah, or do they just question. keep throwing it against the wall, hoping it'll stick? And maybe that's why these cities who bid three, four times don't ever win, because they're not truly revamping the bid. And then the IOC sure. members are like, been there done that we already said no to you it's like when your kid asks you for a candy bar six times Uh and they think that by the seventh time you're going to give them a different answer right and you just look at them and you say you're asking me the same question and here's the answer that i've given you this many times come up with a new question right right it's like can i bid can i have the olympics can i please have the olympics can i pretty please have the olympics how How about about now And the IOC is finally like, no, Spain. That's it. Go to your room. You need a timeout. <laughs> well, we'll put that on our list. And maybe one of these months, years, we'll be able to. Well, after Tokyo, because yeah, I'm still panicking. I know. Gosh. But yeah, after Tokyo, that would be kind of fun to look at cities who have bid multiple times. Hey, speaking of done. bids, I am finally reading our next book club book. I just started. Oh. So reading the suspect all about the Atlanta 1996 bombings. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting section in the book about the 96 bid. So I'm going to be excited to talk, talk about, about that it. along with the actual meat of the book. But there's a nice summary of how that 96 process happened. And it's interesting to read it now after we've done so much research Mm-hmm. and reporting on the whole new bid process. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting, interesting time. And so interesting because Atlanta was a private group. It wasn't the city bidding. So that made it even more complex, I think. It did involve somebody telling the ladies on the committee to wear their big diamonds. <laughs> That's been my favorite detail in the book so far, so... <laughs> I'll be excited to talk to you and Claire about it. Yeah, exactly. And if you've seen the Richard Jewell movie that is also based partly on the book we're reading as well as a Vanity Fair article by Marie Brenner. And it's really good movie. Oscar nominations came out this week and Kathy Bates, who plays Richard Jewell's mother, Bobby, got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So we're going to be recording Book Club soon. So if you've been reading The Suspect or if you've seen the movie... 
Let us know what you think of it. So you can email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. And you can contact us on Twitter and Insta at olimfever. Or join in the fun talking about the paper beds at Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. So let us know what you think of the book. That will be next week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Okay, crazy old lady, like, say what you want. Do, 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 do.